fucking love, nigga. These niggas bleed different. We don't bleed, nigga. We make niggas bleed, blood. Treyway, these niggas that ain't hurting me, I ain't hurting you. Get the fuck up on my fucking face before I murder you. Bitch, niggas don't inject blood, but I know they fool. Oh, squad full of fucking killers, I'm a killer too. Set shot, 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 nigga. Everybody get pop, 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 nigga. The big old run, 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 nigga. We set shot, 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 nigga. Six on this and six on that. Niggas on my dick and on my yak. These niggas looking for me, you can hit my jack. I don't Drop my ass, drop that on six nine I'll drop you, not to attack like you drop em, drop em. Not like niggas don't drop em, drop em. Don't nigga who shot you, drop em. Somebody call the fucking Boy, that escalated quickly. Hey, it's Jose Galison. You're watching Noah Jose. You can find me on Noah Jose YouTube channel. All the major odd packages on see as well. That was a, a little edit on Twitter from my buddy Tim Tuttle. Uh, he puts those together sometime, and I uh, steal them for intros. Uh, you know, so why not? Why not use them? Uh, that was, as you can tell, 9-11 stuff, so we'll be talking about that today. Uh, I have Adam Fitzgerald on the show with me. We will be particularly talking about the Pentagon. Uh, for those who aren't aware, I have a my $10 Patreon level allows you to do a curated episode, and my... Uh, my patron, uh, Zach Overacker, he wanted to do one specifically targeting the Pentagon. I'm sure we'll be a little bit freewheeling as well. We'll probably talk about other stuff. Uh, but yeah, that's the the main point we'll be talking on Pentagon and just whatever else comes up in conversation. Kind of probably, I'm assuming roughly, kind of the theories around it, and then obviously Adam's thoughts on what really happened. I know there's a lot of intrigue between the the surveillance videos, the the you know the wreckage uh, there, there's all sorts of questions when it comes to the pentagon so uh, we'll try our best to address those i will go ahead and say ahead of time for those you know want to get irate one the one way or the other i i don't really have strong opinions on 9-11 stuff so uh, i'm just kind of listening to what adam has to say um i don't know maybe we'll push back here and there but it's so like you don't i mean if you want to get upset anybody i guess direct at adam i don't know i don't or at me i don't care either way you can be upset at me but uh uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I do have thoughts, but I just never really have gone too deep down the rabbit hole with 9-11. I guess maybe I'm just always spurging on something else. But either way, it'll be a fun discussion. Looking forward. I've been wanting to have Adam on the show for a while anyways. So this kind of gave me an excuse to. So I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I do want to remind you guys how this works out. Uh, I mentioned the patron thing. Uh, so the the way this works is I have live streams for my patrons, and it goes out usually roughly a week or so later. Not all my content goes uh, is live stream behind the paywall. Uh, sometimes I do public live streams. That's usually my Four Pony Boys, maybe some current events stuff occasionally. But it's pretty rare. It's mostly it's the Four Pony Boys. But if you want to have access to that early content, it's patreon.com. No way, Jose 2020. Lowest level is two bucks. That gives you access to all the stuff I told you. Uh, and then you have five, 10, 20. Uh, the other ones have differing perks, different levels, but the highest level being 20 is a sponsor. Sponsors are Mikkel Thorpe of the Expat Money Show. They also have Jared or Jeremy, who has an Etsy store, Etsy.com slash shop slash raising liberty. You can follow him on Twitter at Jeremy Rhymes. And also Toad, who's my co-host on Tower Gang. Uh, yeah, definitely go check out the Tower Gang show. You can also follow Twi uh, follow Toad at Tower Gang Toad. Also, Zach Overacker, as I mentioned earlier, he's uh, you know, he's above the ten dollar level. I don't know if that means he's entitled to two of these. I don't know. I haven't really figured that one out. But I mean, I'm open to it. So hit me up, Zach, if you have any other ideas. But you can follow him on Twitter at Z O V E R A C K, and then also Mike Degolish, 
uh yeah um but uh yeah also i want to remind you guys uh toplobster.com that's where you can get those eeky shirts uh see if i still have it over here uh yeah i do i try to keep it nearby so people can see it uh if you want to get the eeky shirt uh show get people asking questions who the hell is eeky i just came off a part of the problem uh you know it dropped on sunday uh, and I'm not going to get this, whatever, just drop recently. I know this is going to get dropped later publicly for people to so be confused with time, but either way, whenever you watch this, it'll already be out. So you can go check out his channel and see that. Uh, I think I did a decent job. Um, look, I've got a lot of good feedback, uh, looking excited to see where that leads. Uh, and with that, let's go ahead and get Adam in here. Hey, what's up, man? Glad to have you here. Hey, Jose. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, uh, I've been looking for an excuse to have you on for a while. It just, uh, there was always some other rabbit hole I was pursuing or something. Uh, there's so many different things. And uh, I mean, I don't know, just 9-11, just for me, just, and I'm not saying anyone's wrong for, you know, going it, but I just kind of follow wherever my Spurg leads. And that's, uh, you know, <laughs> for some reason it hasn't been 9-11. I don't even, for example, foreign policy. I don't even know the last time I covered foreign policy stuff. And there was a period in my life where I was very well-versed on uh, foreign policy. I was super interested all the time. I guess at a certain point you just like move on to another. It's like maybe it's like an ADD thing for like kind of like a Spurg thing, where I find another obsession. Uh, but I don't know, maybe at some point the obsession will swing around 9/11. I always get requests for 9/11 content. Uh, but uh, I'm glad to have you here so we can dig into it a little bit. Maybe it'll spark my Spurg a little bit to want to dig into it some more. But well, it's a very expansive topic, and especially yes. if you have like uh, attention deficit disorder or like <laughs> a very short patient span. It's it'll be very uh, challenging for you. Well, that's the thing with the when I met said a, attention like ADD. That's like a common thing, a trope of ADD is that uh like ADD people will like get like obsessed on specific things, get to like a pretty good like skill level, and then move on to the next thing. Like it's like they get sucked into rabbit holes kind of deal. So it's like it, it's a I guess technically that isn't really like you are still focused, but it's like on one thing. I don't know. It's a weird thing. Uh, I don't know if it's all ADD, but it's definitely a, a common trope. So that's what I was kind of getting at. So, I mean, right now my Spurg has been for a while OKC, and it seems to continue to be that way. And still keep digging into it and keep getting requests to talk about it. So I think I'll probably keep doing so. But yeah, uh, yeah. Um, uh, if you want to go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience a little bit, know let them know who you are, what you're about. I already let people know, obviously, that like 9/11 is kind of like one of your things you're probably known for. But you also cover a lot of other content. Of probably, it's I'd say a lot of it's stuff that's kind of offshoots of like war of war on terror type stuff. I mean, you can correct me if you think it's a little bit wrong, or you want to identify yourself a little bit as a more expansive role. Uh, but that's kind of how I view the the topics you tend to cover. Uh, let, let me know if that's correct or not. Well, no, you're pretty much right. Yeah. Actually, right on the money. I yeah. am the co-host of the Dark and Dower, which is a geopolitical podcast. I've interviewed uh, former intelligence officials, uh, people who worked at the White House, and authors like Scott Orton, who you had on your show. And um, I do cover other areas. Like very few people know that one of my main areas of study is La Cosa Nostra in Jonestown. I barely ever talk about these issues because, like you said, 90% of my content is 9-11 related. But also 9-11 expands into foreign policy. Uh, the understanding of how the intelligence agencies operate when it comes to international terrorism, international terrorism, Middle East culture. There's a lot to go. And um, yeah. so I, that's what I cover at. And also, I do tend to write some articles on Medium. And currently, I'm working on an idea for a book. 
Um, I'm working on that as well. But yeah, I'm mostly known for posting, you know, 3,000 videos on, on YouTube and uh, yeah, the co-host of The Darkened Hour. I also have a WordPress actually. And in that WordPress, I basically upload just documents and files and also books now uh, for free. So it's all content. It's over 5,000 entries there. So um, everything I do is basically for the public to access and to uh, gain information that they're probably not going to get anywhere else, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I do want to correct the record quick. I've actually, I don't think I've ever had Scott on somehow. I just, like I mentioned, I just never have gone to have foreign policy. I won't, you, I'll, you I'll have him on. I'll, you you I'll have everybody else on your show. You can't be <laughs> Me either. I sometimes I think of it, I'm like, why haven't I had Scott on? It's just like, I don't know. I've just, uh, I guess maybe I have a lot of friends who cover foreign policy. It's just not the niche that I really feel the compulsion to really cover. At least now, occasionally I'll touch on it here and there. I definitely am not a fan of war, war bad. Like I, I, it's just for some reason, like the ins and outs of specific like foreign policy, how this country interacts with that country. I just haven't, it hasn't really been something that I've felt compelled to do, but I, at some point I'm sure I will, uh, depending on what, what comes up in the future, but just, it hasn't got my goat lately. I've been considering maybe like in a month to kind of talk about like, cause me and him have a common, the common bond, I guess in some sense with like the OKC stuff. So maybe I'll have him come on at some point for that. But yeah, no, I love Scott too. It's not even anything against Scott. I just haven't really, like, if you ever have Scott on, you're talking foreign policy. And I just, I, I mean, I don't, I, the way I usually do my show is it's like, I just kind of whatever I feel interested in. You talk about skateboard too. He, he knows, you know, he skateboards. <laughs> yeah, no, I love Scott. Scott's great. I think he's actually an absolute hero. Probably, uh, you know, after my whole stunt on Timcast with the Yiki shirt, like, he put out a tweet with my picture and the only the caption, the only thing was heroic. And like for me, that was, you know, uh, like I don't want to get people any ideas that I don't esteem, you know, Scott. Like I think he is like a hero. But like so that that legit was probably the best compliment, in my opinion, I've ever gotten. So like uh, that can tell you like how I feel about Scott. Me not having him on my show doesn't say anything about what I think of him as a person and what he's yes. done. Like he has definitely informed a lot of my opinions, particularly about foreign policy. And maybe in a certain sense, that's kind of why I'm bored by foreign policy because like I have got dug so deep down those followed Scott Horton like crazy that it's just like, all right. I mean, at a certain point you like kind of get the rough dynamics and now we're just getting to the weeds of like, all right, what, what latest skirmish is there? You know? Like, yeah. so, I mean, once you kind of get the blueprint, you're like, okay, I got it. Like, it's not that complicated. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, I guess it's kind of like libertarian theory, you know, if we're going to theory world. Once you, like, understand it and grasp it, it's kind of like, it's kind of easy to graft it onto other things. Because you're like, it's kind of a simple, like, oh, you know, that, you know, uh, I know a lot of people kind of condemn it for that. But that's kind of a similar idea, I think, to foreign policy, kind of what I'm driving at, you know? No. And you know what? Think about foreign policy analysts, especially the experts in the country like Scott is. Scott is actually easy to talk to. Mm -hmm. And um, he relates to the common man. And one thing about uh, foreign policy is that doesn't it doesn't resonate a lot with the common people. So they have very ignorant views when it comes to foreign policy. And that's because they have very dry attitudes and a lot of dry personalities. Scott Horton is not a dry personality, not so ever. And so yeah. that's why a lot of people are drawn to him. And they, they would be, too, because I consider him an expert. So. Yeah, and especially once you know, understand the rich history behind Scott, how long he's been doing this. What actually kind of, like, if you look into, like, liberty history or anti-Fed or anti-war history, like, Scott's kind of been in the mix for forever. So 
it, it really he legit is kind of like it's corny as it may sound like a hero for liberty or 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 anti-fed or anti-war or whatever label you want to put on him you know so uh which is why i think you know between foreign policy and okc those seem to be like kind of it makes sense that he would have latched onto okc because that one is one that like it it has a lot of implications once you start digging deep uh but uh yeah, I guess with that, let's go ahead and get into the Pentagon. I don't know if I should start off with. I have Patreon questions. Uh, I guess we could probably start there. Maybe that'll kind of spark off conversation. From well, there. let me ask you those yeah, questions. Are they pertaining to the Pentagon? Yes, pertaining to the well, Pentagon. Well, why, why don't we do this? Why don't we talk about the Pentagon? Then yeah, have that for, for, for final. Yeah, yeah. I just figured most of these questions I was looking at, I'm like, oh, that's kind of probably or, like you know, whatever or, you feel. I would that. No, be yeah. I mean, if you, how about this? You, you lay down just a quick for those who I don't know don't exist in this world. I guess we could do the the customary what the hell we're even talking about. Although it's, I feel like it's almost this thing that doesn't need to be said. But I don't know. I feel like it's the formal like how you you know talk about like here is what happened, and then we can move hmm. into questions or talking. <laughs> So, I mean, you know, the what the incident, first of all, the incident at the Pentagon is actually the most divisive uh, uh, storyline of 9-11 in the 9-11 Truth Movement, even today. And this started back in 2002. And it was a French author, actually, whose name was Thierry Maison. And he wrote a book called Le Pentgate. And actually, it, he was, um, when he wrote this book, he was uh, not in the United States. So anyway, he got like three pictures, or he saw three pictures that he uh, saw online and he saw the damage to the second floor. And he actually said that that was the first floor. And meanwhile, what happened on the first floor was covered by this foam, this fire foam that is actually trying to put out the fire. It's like this thick foam and covered up the first floor. And so Thierry Maison used those pictures, said it was the first floor and this would be the hole and it would be a 16 foot hole. And he said, well, how can this be the plane? Because a plane, you know, Boeing, uh, 767 200 or 222 series is basically 126, approximately 126 feet wide. Um, and so this damage can't fit with a plane. Meanwhile, a lot of people fell for it. And I think that book actually did well in the United States in 2002, 2006, seven. And it was actually used in films like Loose Change. Uh, another film was In Plain Sight, written by, uh, produced by Dave Von Kleist. So what happened was right off the bat in the very early years of the Night Lord Truth Movement, um, you had this uh, conspiracy which started not just at Ground Zero, but also at the Pentagon. And by default, the Pentagon links with Shanksville. And that people started questioning, well, why didn't they find the plane? There's so lack in the plea. And when you look at it, you're like, wow, you know, if you didn't realize that this was from 9-11, you would say, wow, a plane really crashed here? Because you don't see large pieces of the plane at all. In fact, there's no tail, there's no wing, there's no engine. And at first, back in 2006, when I first started studying 9-11, I watched uh, the first, the film In Plain Sight. And then later on, Lose Change, I was like, they make pretty good points. You know, if you don't know any better, you, you know, you take it face value. But then when you start doing your homework and start playing the devil's advocate, and that's what you do for when you really investigate matters in any point in history, you start weighing the evidence, and all of a sudden, those points that you originally realized and thought were true start to fall apart. Now you make the tough decision whether you say, well, you know what? I was wrong, and now I need to make the correction, or you basically have any preconceived biases, or you just don't want to admit you're wrong, and you hang on to these theories that basically aren't untrue, and you can't explain them away, but you keep repeating them as if they were fact. 
And this is exactly what happened at the Pentagon. And so what happened at the Pentagon? Well, American Airlines Flight 77 was hijacked at Dulles Airport. And um, it basically had a number of passengers on it. And I, I don't remember the exact number, but I want to say it was like around 83 people or something like that. And um, uh, well, I'm sorry, no, it was about 60. It was about 60 people, including the, the, the crew. And what happened was it basically took off out of Dulles and it basically was descending toward Arlington, Arlington County and actually was on a track. If, if you look at the National Transportation Safety Board radar data, it actually was about to fly over the Pentagon. And what it did was it made this long loop, loop around the Virginia, and then came back and descended uh, toward uh, the Pentagon and actually crashed into the Pentagon at 9.36 a.m. And when it did, it actually hit the Pentagon at over 510 miles an hour. And a Boeing airliner that was supposed to land in San Francisco airport actually holds about 36,000 gallons of fuel, which is about 77, 78,000 pounds, approximately pounds of fuel. And when it hit the Pentagon wall, it hit the, it was called wedge one. So in the Pentagon, they have five wedges into this building, a, a pedi, like a pentagram, a pentagram. And um, basically it hit the wedge, the final wedge that was being renovated. And there was this project called the Pentagon a renovation project, which was headed by Lee Evie at the time. And it started back in the mid nineties, around 95, 96. And this, this goes back to the Oklahoma bombing story because they wanted to outfit the building uh, with, with bomb resistant windows. In fact, 60 minutes did an expose just about that part of the project, because when the pen, when the Oklahoma city bombing happened, a lot of the damages and a lot of the uh, uh, people that were found had shards of glass because when they went outside to the windows uh, in nearby buildings and in the building itself, the, the explosion was outward. And also, I think there was uh, bombs inward as well, which caused a huge explosion outward. You could see like debris hitting like two blocks away and doesn't fit well with the, you know, the story about the just the U-Haul truck, but we'll save that for Richard Boots's playlist. Anyway, when the when Pen when when Flight 77 hit the wedge one, it hit it at such a force that the back of the plane became the front of the plane in less than half a second. And so what happened was this caused an enormous explosion at such a high rate of speed and fully loaded with fuel that it basically decimated the plane. And so the the explosion ensued on the first floor of the Pentagon. Now, the misconception about the Pentagon is that there's a wall, there's like five dividing walls because there's five sections of the Pentagon, but that's not right. And if you look at the layout, which is readily available on Google Images, you, you can see the layout. The first floor is just no walls. The first floor is just empty. On the second floor, you have one, one wall, third floor, then the fourth, and so on. And so what happened was the plane crashed right through the first floor all the way out to A&E Drive, which is the driveway into the Pentagon in the uh, inner court. And that's where uh, it made that hole, that punch out hole where you can see the landing gear. And uh, according to firemen from Arlington County and Fort Myer, they found even um, people's feet and shoes and basically very little uh, remains of human remains. And that, and that would be, I mean, obvious because we're 90% liquid water 
and uh, blood and all this is basically going to evaporate with the ensuing explosion and the amount of force that is happening at that high rate of speed, you're basically being crushed into molecules at that point. So if you're being crushed into molecules, what do you think the plane is going to be? But they did manage to find plane debris. They did manage to find um, the uh, uh, flight data recorder, but the cockpit voice recorder actually was so destroyed, they couldn't get anything of value from it. But they also found landing gear. They found a uh, part of the Boeing engine, and it was ripped to shreds. I mean, they found two parts of the uh, turbofan belonging to the engines as well. So there was plane debris, but just not large pieces of it. And we have had, you know, intentional plane crashes throughout history uh, where they, you know, there was an intentional plane crash where it left little plane debris. And just some examples, you had one that was the, the most famous one is the um, Pacific Air Airlines Flight 1771. And that plane was actually going 700 miles an hour, almost the speed of, of sound. And the, the person, David Burke, actually uh, shot the pilot and he basically piloted the plane nose to the ground. And what they found, investigators found, was that there was no large pieces of the plane. Fast forward to German Wings uh, uh, 9595, which crashed into the Andes Mountains at uh, five, 400 and I think 30 miles an hour. And they found no, no human bodies. There was no whole body. Um, they did find human remains, but very few. Uh, they didn't find anything bigger than the uh, a part of the fuselage, which is the, the size of a, a small Volkswagen. Um, and just recently, uh, China uh, China flight, China East Airlines uh, uh, 5735, which happened just three years ago, um, and that was an intentional plane crash. And that plane, I think, was going uh, 500 and. 20 miles an hour, and they found no human remains, just like in 1771, 95, 95, 95, 25, and uh, China Airlines, um, Eastern Airlines. Same thing for Flight 77. Uh, they, they found no whole bodies. And I've interviewed the um, Pentagon Incident Commander, James Schwartz, who's an assistant fire chief at Arlington County. And he basically told me something I didn't realize at the time was that um, they found a part of a woman's body but um, and she was a pastor on the plane, but it was basically, you know, torn to shreds and whatnot. But they basically just about everybody on the plane uh, was really reduced to small bits. And the plane itself was, you know, destroyed to smithereens and you're know, just going to find confetti like structures. And, you know, it's going to happen when you have a plane that's intentionally crashing at a high rate of speed. Now, what, what I think the public discrepancy comes from is that. Uh, early on, the truth movement, they used the, they, they compared like unintentional plane crashes to intentional plane crashes and said, well, look, you know, there's plane debris and there would be. I mean, the pilot's trying to land the plane at a low rate speed while dumping the fuel so it won't blow up. But that wasn't the case in 9-11. In fact, 9-11 was an unprecedented time because nowhere in history have we ever had four intentional plane crashes. So it really was an unprecedented time in history. And what this did was basically create a smokescreen of argument within the 9-11 truth movement, which is unfortunate because it still permeates the, um, the movement to this very day and has hindered it. And basically has caused a public backlash of sorts and characterized the 9-11 truth movement as nothing more than, uh, you know, fringe conspiracy theorists when that isn't true. I mean, this is a small uh, percentage of truthers that basically have hijacked the movement, if I could use that term 
loosely and basically propagated these theories, whether to gain clicks or, you know, gain attention or to uh, buy their books and whatever they're selling at the time. But it's unfortunate because a lot of these people basically have destroyed the public perception of the night living treatment by propagating these theories. Yeah. I think to some extent this, uh, I think this phenomenon you're getting at uh, kind of with people jumping to, I guess, less uh, credible theories, I think at its core, I think it mostly comes from a good place. I think the reasoning being, I think people just in their gut see this thing, this this whole event, 9-11 in, in general, and they just feel like it's not what they're like it's the the official narrative's not right and like i obviously have nothing against you know that type of thinking very rarely is official narrative correct and i'm not at all against the idea of you know our own government perpetrating uh, acts of terror against us they've done it before they'll probably they may do it again hopefully uh you know with this new information age we can make it borderline impossible for them but um you know it's it's not, I'm definitely not against the idea. Obviously we can see the incentives, but I think you kind of got to keep a good head on your shoulders. And I guess this kind of leads me to the first question before we get into the Patreon stuff. I had something that just kind of came up. Like, I feel like in my head, there's like multiple levels of culpability for like, say if we're referring, because most people will be like kind of insinuating our own government or some other governments, you know, had some involvement usually is kind of what the core of these is getting at usually. And I feel like there's multiple levels. You have like at the lowest level, like an oopsie, like, oops, we messed up. Like say we were aware or we did, we somehow screwed up in some way, but this level, I feel like that you don't, you don't also do a cover up of some sort. And then you have another level. It's like cover up. Uh, and that's where you like, whether you did it on purpose or someone else did it or whatever, for some reason, you felt the need to cover up. It could be as simple as, uh, I don't know, let's say, you know, say with the Saudi Arabia angles, another Saudi Arabia angles in 9-11. Let's say, you know, it it was just because there was some untowards connections to certain politicians that we have strong connections with. Uh, our government felt the need to do their part to uh, cover it up so that they, you know, didn't complicate uh, public relations or, uh, you know, foreign relations or whatever. You know, and even that, that's wrong. Like, that's not okay. So that, like, that's like another level of culpability. And there's a wide range of that. And then you also have like lie hop, and then you have my hop, which like yeah. let it happen and or make it happen. Uh, which those is like almost kind of hard to tell the difference between the two because they sometimes they look dang near the same. So I, I guess the, what I'm kind of trying to get at is like, it just what what is your read on it? And obviously, I know this is a hard question because there's so many different levels just kind of loosely your read on it and then maybe you can even give like your level of credibility to each level of culpability like because even then i know with me say with like oklahoma city like i can kind of give you my rough you know what i think is the likelihood of everyone like oopsie 100 like it, you know you get to cover up 100 i'm like sure that happened we get to lie hop i'm like that's it's still pretty likely you get to, to to my hop. I'm like, it's actually more likely than we'd like to think it is. There are things that imply it. Although I will say that one's not a smoking gun. So, you know, like you kind of, you kind of got to couch your, the way you frame it in that, you know, like, Hey, like here's some information that seems to imply this, but let's be realistic with what kind of information this is. Uh, you know, look at the sources. There's also a pretty, pretty strong claim. So, and you know, it's sitting on kind of, not the strongest sources or only a couple spare documents. You, you kind of have got to have a little bit of honesty there. Like whenever I try to like present the my hop angle of like, say, OKC, okay, 
I am very much couching in like, okay, but like we don't need this. We can still hammer them on, you know, uh, on, you know, cover up. Like that's easy. Like it's, it's, it's incredibly obvious there was a cover up and they, and uh, at the very least they also had an oopsie they were covering up, you know? So, uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll see the floor to you before I keep rambling. I, I think you get the, the core of the question I'm asking. I do. And that's ex it's an excellent question. Actually, it talks about the real cover up involved and the cover up is not laying on the ground at the Pentagon. It's not inside the Pentagon. It's actually in the plane. And in order to do that, to make sense to the viewer, I'll have to go back in time to make sense of it. Um, if you'll give me a little bit of a chance to explain go for it. Um, what I'm talking about is there's two individuals on that plane that were involved with the hijacking of Flight 77. This is actually the cover up involving the CIA and the NSA and probably Saudi intelligence as well, as well as Israeli intelligence. And that is Khalid Al-Midar and Nawaf al-Hazmi. And for those who are saying, well, who are these two guys? Well, they're Al-Qaeda operatives with a long history of being involved with the group that go back to even the early 90s. And this is coming from the intelligence agency's own admission, uh, including the CIA, who knew about these two individuals. Well, let me uh, give you a chronological order of things. Uh, back in 1992, um, depending on who you talk to from the FBI or the NSA, uh, they believed that the CIA and the NSA began monitoring bin Laden as early as 92. Could be even before that, I think. But let's go with just 92. The NSA were listening to the satellite phone calls of this individual. And what happened was uh, the phone was being transferred to other people in Al-Qaeda, Dr. Ayman al-Zawahiri, Mohammed Atef, and Abu Abed al-Bashir and all these other individuals. So they found out there was one number that kept calling it and bin Laden kept calling it. And they found out that, hey, wait a minute, you know, this number is really important. And this was found out in 1996. And so they located this number to a house in Yemen in the capital, Sana. And what they realized was that this guy who owned the house named Ahmed al-Hada was an associate of bin Laden from the Soviet Afghan days. And who lived at this house? Well, Khalid al-Midar. Khalid al-Midar actually was married to the daughter of Ahmed al-Hada, Hoda al-Hada, that made him his son-in-law. And so over the years, the NSA started bugging this house from 1996 to 2002. That's six, uh, 2001. That's five years prior to the September 11 events. And so what I'm trying to get at is, you know, you know, what do you think al-Qaeda was talking about on those phones? You know, they're not like me and you. They're not talking about Kim Kardashian's ass and, you know, the Yankees or something like that, right? These are serious men. They're talking about operations. So... Uh, I can't prove that, but according to, you know, Thomas Drake, the former senior executive of the NSA, uh, that the NSA was the gold standard and gold mine of data that it, they collected so much information, signals, intelligence, that's phone calls, emails, uh, that they collected over the years on these two operations that they could have stopped 9-11 altogether if it was shared. And just them alone, I might talk about the, NSA, uh, the CIA. So the CIA began doing human intelligence on the house. They noticed that these two men, uh, Khalid al-Binar and Wafa Hafmi, were, you know, appearing at this house and whatnot. Then one day in 1999, December of 99, actually there was a phone call that the NSA heard. And it was coming from a person named Khalad. His name was Taufik bin Atash, who's a very big name in al-Qaeda in Yemen. And he was involved with the bombing of the USS Cole. And he basically told Khalid al-Midar to come to a meeting in Malaysia. And so they did. And the CIA found out about it. And they told Malaysian authorities to go and take photographs of these people. And basically they did. So they collected a lot of information about these two guys and everybody who went to this meeting as well. And it's asserted that by from the CIA that they were talking about 9-11 and the bombing of the Yosef's Cole at this meeting. And so when they left, Khalid Amidar and Nawaf al-Hafmi left, uh, basically the CIA uh, basically said they lost track of them. And why? 
because they were coming to the United States. And on January 5th, the two, January 8th, uh, I'm sorry, January 15th of 2000, Khalid al-Bidar and Nawab al-Hazmi came to the United States and they came with dual U.S. visas, known to the CIA, known to the NSA, and yet didn't share this information with who? The FBI and the State Department. Therefore, there was a cover-up right off the bat. That's one year, 17 months prior to the attacks. And so they kept this information, even while they were inside the United States, and lied to the FBI. In fact, the FBI, one FBI agent, I interviewed Mark Rossini, who was working at the CIA's bin Laden station, which is a virtual station involving the FBI, the NSA, collecting information about al-Qaeda all around the world, and saw this cable come in about Khalid al-Binar and Nawab al-Hazmi. They came into the country, and they said, all right, this is a Department of Justice matter. We need to start monitoring these people because we know they're al-Qaeda. CIA said, no. You're not going to share that information, and we'll let the FBI know because we think the next attack is overseas. And Mark Rossini is basically yelling at these people, one of them being Tom Wilshire, the deputy director of the Alex Station, Bin Laden Issue Unit, that was codenamed Alex Station. And he's telling them they're inside the United States. It's an FBI matter. And he said, well, it's a CIA information, and you're allowed to share it. And so they couldn't, by law, they could not, unless they'd be arrested. And so... They knew about these two men inside the United States, and slowly but surely, other 9-11 operatives came all throughout 2000 and 2001, all known to the NSA, all known to the Saudis, the Israelis, who were running their own intelligence, whether in conjunction with the CIA and the NSA. And so on September 11, 2001, Khalid al-Midar, Nawaf al-Hazmi, were seen on security video at Dulles, entering the plane, I mean, going through security. Um, they got their, you know, they went through um, a secondary uh, security gate and basically entered Flight 77. And therefore, without any knowledge from the FBI or State Department they would, that they were in the country, they were told too late in late August 2001, finally, by the CIA, but they still didn't tell them their full names and didn't tell them they had U.S. visas. This was kept from them until after the attacks happened. Because in the afternoon hours of 9-11, when all the attacks happened, a CIA analyst was in Yemen talking with an FBI agent named Ali Sufan, who was actually interrogating uh, an individual who was a, a liaison to, uh, to bin Laden, and he was handed a file. And the file had the photographs of Khalid al-Minar and Nawaf al-Hazmi, and he told that agent that these were the men involved with the hijacking of Flight 77 that hijacked the Pentagon. And Ali Sufan ran to the bathroom and threw up. Because Ali Soufan, just like every FBI agent in New York and Washington, D.C., knew about these two guys, but only knew them that they were, in, they, were, they were abroad, had no idea they were in the country until after the attacks happened. And then when the congressional inquiries happened, the 9 Commission, Joint House Inquiry, what happened? Well, they, they interviewed the director of CIA, George Tenet. They've interviewed the director of the counterterrorism for the CIA, Kofor Black. They interviewed Tom Will Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Wilshire, the deputy director of the Bin Laden Issue Station, all of three of them basically told different stories about the mishandling of information from the FBI. In fact, George Tenet lied, committed perjury 
twice. I even made a podcast about that. And told, I said, my God, you know, how does nobody talk about this? He said that nobody read that cable at the CIA. Meanwhile, 55 agents from the CIA read that cable. So they knew about these two guys, knew about them, and then covered up the fact. Now, here's where conspiracy could run into play. Did they want this to happen? Did they make this happen by allowing them and then by hereby allowing these attacks to happen? Because like I said, referring to the phone calls, what is the one thing about intelligence services? They collect information, whether it's signals, that's emails, phone calls, text messages, or human intelligence. That is basically watching a person under observation, taking photographs and monitoring their whereabouts. And what happened here was, was that they may have collected information. Now, I don't know this for sure. It's speculation. So let's be careful here. I don't know what they were talking about in those phone calls, but they would talk about the 9-11 operation involving planes, involving crashing them in specific targets. Well, the NSA would know that. The CIA would know that. The Israelis and Saudis would know that because they were on the ground in the United States. But we don't have that information because the CIA and the NSA won't declassify it. And the Israelis and Saudi operatives were deported out of the country. So they can't be under investigation. Um, so if they were talking about the operations, they can make preparations for these attacks to be successful. In other words, don't have NORAD interfere with these planes. Um, allow these people not to be investigated by the FBI. Allow them to come into the country unabated, even from Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia, where there's known hotspots for terrorism because there's a uh, Visa Express program in place, which was, uh, uh, some say, headed by, at, at, at a shadow's length, the CIA. So what you have here is allowing these people to conduct the attacks and then take advantage of the attacks. And I would probably give a good argument that's exactly what happened, because what happened after 9-11 is much worse than what happened on 9-11 itself. So that leads into your question about whether let it happen or made it happen, I can make an excellent case for let it happen. Made it happen? Well, they don't need to. Why would they need to? You already have an entity that basically hates the United States that wants to conduct attacks. All right, let them come in. Let them do the attacks. Because if you want to say, and if you want to go into the fringe aspects of theory, if you want to say that there were no hijackers on these planes, that the planes were actually drones, or that the planes are holograms, and that uh, whatever fringe conspiracy mindset you want to talk about these issues and planting plane debris on the site and human remains. Now what you did was you created an avenue, a bigger vacuum of allowing the public sector to come into a very big conspiracy and people that you need to, you need to monitor 24 hours a day for 22 years to make sure that the story goes along with the government narrative. That's a lot of people you're inviting, the FBI, FEMA, even local fire departments, police departments, first responders, all people who found like plane debris and human remains of pastures and artifacts like ID cards and whatnot. That's a lot of people you have to involve. It's much easier to allow these attacks just to transpire without interference from anybody and then take advantage of the fact and hide the real cover up. And that is that the intelligence services knew this was going to happen and didn't share this information for whatever reason. I think that's the plausible explanation. Yeah, I think there. when it comes to LIHOP and MIHOP, there's almost like a blurry line at which point right. one enters the other. Uh, I think some of the things you alluded to being a possibility were, would honestly be on the lower end of MIHOP. Uh, to, you know, you, it seems you were implying there's a strong possibility that perhaps certain, certain actors in positions of power may have 
made subtle little moves to make uh, this easier to happen. Uh, and so when it comes to lie hop or my hop, it might, it's like really a matter of intentionality. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, so it, it is to some extent, unless you're trying to say something like, I don't know, it was, it was all drones or something. Okay. Yeah. No, that's just like a resolute solid my hop. Like, let's mm-hmm. be real if that's the case. But if you're on the other end where it's like they are providing material support or doing things in the aims of this happening, uh, sometimes it becomes a position where they have plausible deniability to where it could still be in a lie hop situation as opposed to a my hop because we're not mind readers. They can defend certain actions as, well, that wasn't because we were wanting this event to happen. This is because we we had in- embedded ourselves in this this group and we were gathering intel and oh we didn't understand that it would go this far or whatever it gives you this plausible plausible deniability so sounds like to me you are like pretty much resolutely you believe lie hop but it, you're heavily suspicious of my hop and but you you probably seem uh you know happy to say that like you are not happy but that you would probably receipt that in a place of but i can't prove that aside from maybe a few suggestive things here and there does that I sound right so uh, you know, sums up my my uh, way of thinking regarding, like I said, I, I could probably make a really good argument for letting it happen, but making it happen, yeah, that's, pre- that's pressing it. Yeah, yeah, because it is this, the nature of the things, and this is kind of roughly, like I said, I'm not a huge 9-11, but I've, I've gone down these rabbit holes before, and that kind of seemed to always be my impression that like some of the more fantastical, like they completely perpetrated this. I mean, I don't necessarily throw some aspects of those theories out the window. I don't know. I'm a little open-minded. I don't believe it. Uh, like, I'm the kind of guy who likes to listen to crazy schizo uh, podcasts about, like, conspiracies, that just wild stuff. But, like, I also have a – I feel like I have a decent, like, rational mind into where I can go, like, all right, well, that's that's bullshit. That's bullshit. I feel like personally myself, I find it's almost like a fun thought exercise listening to these people lay out certain con- like crazy conspiracies. And sometimes I do identify like, okay, well, you made a good point there. I don't know, maybe there's something there. But I'm like, okay, yeah, I don't, I don't think the aliens did it. But you know, like, yeah, <laughs> or, so, you know what I mean? Like you, you kind of take the good with the bad. It is also kind of fun to see the the schizo mind at work and what kind of connections they make. And sometimes you can be like, oh no, all right, well, that's an interesting connection. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I guess let's go ahead and get into the questions. Uh, I think a lot of these will be may, uh, maybe retreading it. Uh, Zachary, does he actually believe it was a plane? Veteran pilots say they could not have flown the plane in that flight path, even with a nimble military plane. So how did this novice get that got terrible reviews, basically couldn't fly functionally uh, at flight school, fly at an impossible path? Uh, I've heard this before. Actually, that started under Pilots for 9-11 Truth, uh, which was headed by the late Rob Balsamo, who passed away just uh, about two years ago. Um, these were people who aren't actually commercial airline pilots, but uh, Piper plane pilots and whatnot. I think you have one commercial pilot, but who says that everybody has to be rational? They actually don't believe that uh, the hijackers are dead. Some of them are alive. Uh, so they're they're basically, they're way of thinking actually uh, gets in the way of their rational cognitive thinking. Um, what Now, I don't know why they went down the shop, but no uh, reputable airline industry, including the AIU, the, the a, um, AIA, which is the largest union in the United States, you know, they don't have any problem that, you know, the United Airlines, American Airlines were hijacked. Um, uh, I noticed that uh, this uh, claim that 
Hanley Hanjour was a terrible pilot, um, but he wasn't training to be a pilot. He was actually training how to take off, and that's all he needed to do was basically take off because he's not landing. Uh, doesn't You don't need to be an expert to crash a plane. There was actually nothing that he did was actually that couldn't be done by an amateur. In fact, um, I should post the uh, video. It's a short video I have in my own personal watch list of an uh, amateur actually in a simulation machine actually crashing in the Pentagon twice using mm -hmm. the radar data that was used by on Flight 77. So it's not like, you know, this couldn't be replicated. Um, but like I said, crashing a plane doesn't take an expert. And um, you don't need to be an expert to pile the plane, really. You know, they trained on sim. In fact, Hani Hanjo was the most experienced of them all because he actually trained to be a pilot as far back as the mid-90s. He actually went to the University of Arizona here in the United States in 92 to study electrical engineering. And he actually took a flight training school in Tucson in 1993. And he went back to Saudi Arabia because he wanted to be a pilot and trained there. So he trained a, a lot of uh, airline. Now, like I said, he couldn't speak English very well. Um, he couldn't land very well. And so he got these very low grades. And uh, do I think he deserved his like commercial airlines ratings list? I, I couldn't tell you whether he should or not. Maybe not. Um, because, you know, like I said, you know, he's training to just basically take off and learn about the, you know, the no novice uh, understanding of a plane. Like I said, none of these guys were trained to be pilots. They were trained to crash. I mean, he didn't even know how to he need to know how to take off because they took him off, took over the planes in flight. So, uh, I mean, you're already in the air. You know, if you're not planning on landing, that's that's the the that's the hardest part, taking off and landing. So, I don't, and plus, this was all flight seven was also on autopilot for most of the flight. Mm -hmm. uh, so, where the heck does that that theory color or the 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 whole line of like that was an impossible flight? But like, is that like some people conflating that with? Uh, professionals saying like basing that off of like you know flying in that way with the intense anticipation of landing or something i because otherwise i mean i've never really like really dug into the veracity of that claim much but like i i, I don't know the whole idea i guess is a, a, to be able to get down because i mean it's a pretty low building sort of to get like kind of come down and come in straight like that I, I don't i don't really know i don't know if there were obstacles i believe i remember vaguely something about obstacles you'd have to avoid I, I don't know. Is there anything to that? Or is it just like a claim that, you know, there is like some small grain of truth in the aspect of like, like I was saying, they conflated it with some other like, you know, thing where someone was basing it off of, I don't know, maybe some sort of academic aspect of like flying to or like, yeah, like you, you, on this flight path, you're clearly not going to make it <laughs> or something yeah. like that. You know what I mean? Cause like, yeah, like you said, you're not trying to land. So like if you're basing this off of traditional, I know the academics of flying, like, yeah, <laughs> this kind of right. breaks cool. all the rules. <laughs> you know, in the, in the, in the mid-2000s, uh, like I said, Pals for 9 and Truth were the, were was a big organization at one point, prominent 9 and Truth movement. And it was actually um, even supported by 911 uh, advocates like David Ray Griffin and Jim Fetzer. Um, and Loose Change actually re relates uh, much of Rob Balsama's work uh, in the film. Uh, so, you know, the 9-11 Truth Movement took them as gospel because Rob Balsamo was actually a pilot for his passenger planes. I mean, um, his own personal planes. Um, I think Colonel Wittenberg, uh, Russ Wittenberg, uh, co-founder of the site, he's actually a commercial airline pilot. But, um, I mean, not everybody's going to be rational and sane. Now, I'm not saying these people are kooks and crazies and whatnot. But they're just basically wrong. Now, 
there's various reasons as to why they're doing this. Whether they want to implicate the government that bad, they'll just facilitate something as erroneous as this, or they just got it wrong. Um, I well, can't. I fed can't money by the feds to say certain things. <laughs> well, then you know that's another. I, I hate going down the road because I think that way with Alex Jones, and I hate that yeah. guy. Uh, but he has such a big platform. But these guys are small timers. But yeah, I mean, I I just think they're they're just you know wanting so desperate to blame the federal government that they'll just believe any theory that goes against this official narrative. And I think yeah. that's the essence of this is that they've been told for so long that you know the official narrative is wrong. And from my experience, to them, the official narrative is that four planes were hijacked by rat 19 radical Islamics who hate our freedoms and crashed them into the World Trade Center Pentagon Shanksville, and that the World Trade Center came down by pre-planted explosives. But if you just see 9-11 as that, you're missing 90, 98% of the story because there's so much more to it. And if people just dismiss the 9-11 commission or the joint house inquiry, the two 9-11 inquiries that took place, and you don't read these reports and what is right and what is wrong, not everything they told is a lie, but not everything is told the truth, but most of the information is missing. And that is uh, a testament to the agencies like the CIA, the NSA, the Israelis and Saudis who didn't share this information with anyone. And they classify this stuff. The reason why they classify, you know, same thing with the Oklahoma City bombing. I mean, there's documents and files that, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands locked away for the next 40 years. Why? Because all the major players are involved in cover up are dead. And so they can't be held into account. I mean, take a look at JFK, for goodness sakes. And that was that 70 years now running. So you have this massive cover up involving 9-11, huge. I mean, so global. Uh, that involves a lot of players. And there's a lot of cover up going on. But if you basically don't, uh, acknowledge that the simplistic and the obvious happened, well, then you're not going to delve into the intricacies and anomalies that took place on that day, because if you don't believe in hijackers, well, there's no no issue in studying about their backgrounds and how they intertwine with the intelligence services. And yeah. so you won't you won't care to go down that road. And so I think the 9-11 truth movement, unfortunately, went down that road many a time. So that's where that started, about the planes and, you know, whoa, the couldn't make that turn. You know, the turn, by the way, uh, which you can see on the radar data report, wasn't a very hard turn. It actually went on, uh, I think it was going 230 miles an hour, the plane. It wasn't going very fast. And then when it descended into Arlington City, and basically he just put on the pedal and went straight down and basically hit the Pentagon. That was actually seen by over 100 people who were in the vicinity of the Pentagon. Yeah, uh, I do want to say to for those, I guess maybe I, I mean, this will be, I don't know if I'll drop another episode between or not, but this might be the episode I drop right after part of the problem. So I'll probably get a good view, but I, I want to, so I'm probably getting a little bit of new audience here. I want to be very clear when I threw up the, the, the fed thesis, I wasn't claiming that like everyone's a fed or even that it's like, there's a bunch of feds or even that you should immediately jump to the thought of fed. But mm -hmm. I think people should keep in mind that the fed slash fed informant slash asset is a legitimate concern especially in stuff like this um i mean once you start digging into these rabbit holes and start getting a grasp on these like these deep parapolitics type stuff um like you understand i mean you just go on a few rabbit holes you know whether it's jfk okc even 9-11 you or or you know another good one to go down is like uh the the manson uh, rabbit hole like go read chaos like you know, or once you start, I mean, hell, even modern day uh, yay with his whole like Pastor Nick stuff with his uh, doctor, like you start to get a grasp on the mechanisms of the deep state 
and to what extent they have infiltrated all different fields. So it only makes sense if you have a narrative that they would also be doing their best to try to control the counter narrative as well. So I'm not saying, I'm not accusing any of those individuals of being feds, but I'm saying remain open to the possibility. And I would be greatly surprised if there aren't people out there spreading crazy theories that are feds. But at the same time, it's also like someone could just be, uh, I don't know, an idiot and and not understand their ways or mean well. Or they, I mean, sometimes we have this problem too with, uh, where something will come up, some source, some person will claim this thing, and then that source becomes a source for another source. And, and then it just becomes this compounding effect of like source within a source within a source, but then it's based on this original, you know, faulty source that, you know, no one really rooted out from the beginning. So it is hard when you're dealing with these facts and stuff so i do think you gotta you know keep that in mind fairness and there is a grifting and i and like usually i use grifting like kind of kind of like sarcastically because it's just been like denigrated to the point of meeting someone who promotes something that you don't like like that's basically what it functionally means at this point in time uh so i think it's actually kind of a useless word um it's kind of in the in the realm of when you're politically using the word cuck or libtard or or mag idiot or, or like it, it means nothing other than i don't like you <laughs> but when i say grifter i mean whether consciously or subconsciously there becomes this effect where people notice some sort of boost uh i feel like there is when i say subconsciously this probably happens sometimes with things like social media uh i feel like this is a common thing especially when people are constantly negative like if they're always shitting on certain characters and don't get me wrong, I've had my fair share of shitting on people on social media, but if that is like what you make your personality, I think people notice, like you'll see like a boost where you're like, Oh, you're kind of getting a boost off this hate. And then you just kind of feed into that and you're, you're rational. You're like the subconscious behind your rational mind kind of sort of takes over and you continue in that methodology. Um, So when I say that I, I could, I literally mean it could be someone who has, some sort of faulty theory that maybe is for some reason has gained some sort of interest with people and maybe they feel some sort of emotional connection to it or whatever. And because of the boost kind of like getting gassed up by people, they kind of just, you know, latch onto it and find ways like essentially cognitive dissonance to where they're willing to look overlook certain you know negative aspects, or it literally could be as simple as just like, well, I'm making money off this or whatever, or, you know, personal mm-hmm. gain. Uh, I don't know. I, I think, I, I will say on that aspect, I think that's something if you are a content creator, I think going forward in the future, like unless you are a Fed that has some sort of Fed backing to be able to manipulate algos and stuff, I don't think that's a good long-term plan. If you're trying to be a content creator and trying to make a name for yourself, I feel like that's a good way to have maybe a small quick rise and then just like, you know, like I think that the the... the I think the move is to be consistent and, uh, you know, reliable and people identify that over time and you gain followings that way. It's, it's kind of the libertarian concept of time preference. If you're like, if you, if you, you have the high time preference thing would be the idea of like, essentially you need your gratification quicker. Uh, it would be the stuff like not being logical, being unreliable, kind of jumping to this theory, that theory, or like kind of like the, constantly just shitting on people and that's kind of what you make your personality uh you know and the obviously the low time preference would be the opposite uh so yeah i get a little bit a little bit of a rant there but i think there's uh something good there at the root of it 
Um, all right, last one. Uh, this is from Zachary again. He says, definitely asked about the stand-down orders Cheney gave prior to the plane hitting the building. Uh, I guess this is kind of a two-parter. Uh, also, what does he think about Rumsfeld basically missing for hours, supposedly helping in the crash flight or crash site? Uh, I, don't know, I guess start. you can start with Ch- Cheney giving stand-down orders because uh, I, I do remember that being a thing. Yeah, this is actually uh, up for debate, right? So Cheney was at the Presidential uh, Emergency Operations Center located in the, uh, uh, the, um, in the White House and actually surrounded by the you know, st- top staff of the White House and government and the military and basically was actually talking with somebody. And there was a naval aide who goes by the name of Douglas Cochran, actually. A lot of people wanted to know who that was when he said the plane is 50 miles out, the plane's 40 miles out. And this actually is referring to Flight 77. And so what happened was Dulles, uh, uh, Indianapolis, I'm, I'm sorry, Ronald Reagan National Airport, which is right near the Pentagon, uh, which is the center of uh, airline, the airlines uh, in Washington, D.C., basically reported that there was a high-speed plane coming in very low. And usually right near, that's right near the airport, planes have to come in on a very slow descent to land. But this plane actually was going very fast. And so uh, there was a... Um, a boss, uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, control uh, O'Brien, Daniel O'Brien, she saw this blip on the screen. Now, with the transponder turned off, um, the plane doesn't have the markings on the screen, but it has the blip. So this person was looking at this blip coming in at a high rate of speed. And she says that she thinks it's a military plane because only military planes go that fast. Why would this plane go that fast when it's landing? Well, not realizing this plane wasn't going to land. It was actually going to crash. So while well, the plane was descending into Arlington City, uh, there was another C-130 plane that actually saw the, the flight center. And they basically said, oh, this plane is going very fast. It's descending. This information reached the PIOC and Dick Cheney's on the phone. And then label A, Douglas Cocker comes in, sir, the plane's 50 miles out. Sir, the plane's 40 miles out. And when it got to the, sir, the plane's 10 miles out. Do the orders still stand? And Dick Cheney, according to uh, his wife, Lynn Cheney, who wrote Daily Notes, it's on scribd.com. Dick Cheney quipped his neck around and said, of course the orders still stand. Have you heard anything to the contrary? Now, what would that be? Would it be a uh, a shoot-down order? Well, the vice president didn't have shoot-down authority until 10.30 a.m., and the vice president is not part of the military chain of command. This is actually going to answer the second question quite fine, which I'm glad uh, that guy asked it. Um, and so basically, it's not a shoot-down order. This is basically a stand-down order. Well, I mean, why else would they allow, would would they not want to shoot down the plane? Well, because Dick Cheney hasn't given that authority. Now, I would happen to submit this answer to your second question. This is about military chain of command. Now, the military chain of command goes as follows. When it comes to shoot down authority, the president, the secretary of defense, NORAD, they make the decisions. If the president is somehow can't get in touch or somehow the secretary of defense is not available, they, well, they practiced this. Now, back in the 19, late 1970s and 80s, during the Reagan administration, they would run these um, operations that involved uh, the future Vice President Dick Cheney, who at the time was a staffer under the Reagan administration, and also Richard Clark, who was head of the National Security Counterterrorism Center under the Clinton and Bush administrations. And these were continuity of government operations in, in the hopes that it, under the Cold War, if one area of government is not functioning, 
And that means another area of government's functioning. In other words, the president and vice president under a threat matrix, under a direct threat matrix, like a nuclear threat, are going to be separated so that the government, government could continue to govern the country. So in other words, the president's dead. Vice president is now the president. Well, the vice president is dead. Now it's left up to the uh, secretary of defense or the speaker of the house, whoever's li living. Yep. So they would have these bunkers and all these different areas of people living under these bunkers. So on 9-11, what happened? Well, the president was in Air Force One and he couldn't directly talk to Cheney at times because the plane's phone was malfunctioning at times. In fact, he complained about it. Political wrote a very good article about this, talking about how it's called the um, We're the Only Plane in the Skies name of the article. I think it's political or pro-publica, one of those. Um, but he basically was complaining about, I got to talk to the vice president. You know, we got to talk. Well, what's going on? The secretary of defense. Well, he's second in command in the military chain of command. Where is he? Well, he's outside the Pentagon. He's not at, well, nation's under attack. Why the hell is he outside, you know, helping out? Well, with, the, with no secretary of defense and with no president, shoot down authority goes to who? Well, it goes to NORAD. Who is NORAD talking on the phone with? The vice president, Dick Cheney. So Dick Cheney is illegally breaking that command code because he's actually giving orders. Now, there's a fine line. Do we know what's talked about on the phones? We would, but the transcripts don't exist. In fact, afterwards, Lynn Cheney, I think um, the secretary of, no, the national security advisor under the Bush administration, Condoleezza Rice, would complain that the transcripts and the phones basically weren't recorded. So who knows what they were talking about on those phones? They're going to come out clean and say, yeah, we gave a stand down order. In other words, they wanted the plane to hit the Pentagon because with the planes hitting the World Trade Center, it wasn't an act of war. When the plane hit the Pentagon, it was an act of war because it hit the military nerve center. So was it a stand down order? I'll leave it up to you. Right. Mm -hmm. What is the most obvious in this? Right. The most obvious is the most evident. The only thing is, is that we can't prove it in a court of law because we don't have the direct evidence. And this is the reason why they classify stuff or they don't record stuff or the tapes go missing, you know, like in Oklahoma City. Right. So we have this uh, uh, consistent uh, problem throughout history regarding main events. So I would submit to you, I think that was a stand down order because they didn't give a shoot down on it to 1036 a.m. And that's when all the planes had crashed that day. So, uh, I mean, I, you did, I guess, kind of, sort of, touch on the last, the second question. Uh, uh, the the second part of the question, I guess, there was two questions within one. It said also, what does he think about Rumsfeld miss, basically missing for hours, supposedly helping the crash? Site? Yeah, he was. You he's kind of tied that yeah, into. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. He's actually yeah. outside helping people. In fact, there's a couple of people complained, "What the hell is he doing out here?" Because there was all there was at the time of the crash. Now there was hundreds of people coming to the, the crashing. All, you know, Fort, Fort Meyer, Fort Belvoir, Ronald Reagan International Airport had fire departments coming in. So all these first responders were arriving within minutes. So it made no sense for President, I mean, the Secretary of Defense to be outside at the nation of an under attack. Makes no sense at all why we'd be out there. Now, of course, the staff basically would come out to the New York Times and Chicago Tribune and basically report that, oh, it's uh, that's expected from Rumsfeld. He wants to help, <laughs> considering he's a war criminal. Yeah, yeah. he wants to help them. <laughs> they were, this reminds me of the uh, yeah. 
There were in OKC because the the whole. I mean, if you, anyone's been following my content, you know I, I'm not going to rehash it all. I don't feel the need to hold people's hand through it. But the ATF weren't there in the building. Like I don't really need to give you the additional stuff to support that. But they weren't there that morning. And then later, there also became. Uh, this is one I haven't really put on any like big shows or you know much because it's like kind of in the weeds. This is pretty much just on my series I think so far. But like one other thing is this is some Richard Booth brought up. They literally made up like fantasy stories of them. Like uh, I think it was one particular story where uh, the AT there were some ATF agents in the building and the uh, the their story was that the elevator uh, you know. Uh, collapsed uh, like it fell like I can't remember how many floors but it was like kind of like it was almost sounding like some dumb Rambo nonsense and then and the story was and then they basically broke through the doors and started to helping people and stuff and it's oh, like terrible. and then come to find out they talked to the elevator make it like some elevator technicians are like yeah if they were in free fall that long uh, yeah they'd probably be dead <laughs> like so it's out of this misunderstood the physics of how like elevators work like i don't they just think you're falling but you're inside a thing so oh oh like maybe it'll hurt a little bit like no it's the same concept of falling from anything else so if you were in a dead fall and stopped it's the same idea um but but yeah no it's just it's just funny the the the, the I mean, I don't know. I guess, yeah, sure. Technically, maybe Rumsfeld could have been saving people, but <laughs> it sounds a little fantastical. Like, I, I don't know. Considering he's the author of the torture program, I, I happen to say no. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. There's a little bit different than like, because uh, the, the idea is that he was at the Pentagon, right? And then he was helping people yeah. at the Pentagon. So like, I don't know. Maybe, let's be fair. Maybe he didn't know that like, that it was like, whether like, say there was some lie hop, my hop thing. Maybe he wasn't in the know. Uh, maybe no one cared to let him be in the know. Maybe that was like an acceptable casualty in their heads or whatever. Uh, you know, whether they knew he was there or not, I don't know. But uh, well, liability, right? Yeah. So, like, I don't know. You, if you're in the Pentagon, like, even the most evil people have friends. So, like, these are going to be people that he's probably like in the building that he sees. You know, probably sees sometimes. Sure. You know. So I don't know. I'm sure he has some shred of humanity. <laughs> Well, I would, no, no, I think this is a great point that you raised, yeah. you know, very well. And it also gives them the excuse not to be at the at the time of the uh, attacks in order to make decisions that if you want to have a stand down order, a shoot down order right away, you would have people at the military chain of command making those orders. Yeah. Well, this has been a great episode, uh, Adam. It's been a pleasure having you on. I will definitely have to do this again at some point. Uh, covering, uh, you know, I don't know. We can cover some other stuff. You had a you had an interesting uh, talk on your show recently, kind of going into how the the how the powers that be kind of control the media and the narrative. And mm. I mean, once again, it's another thing you commonly see, you know, like we even brought up earlier, how they infiltrate different areas, even just like media aside. Like, I mean, there's been, they've infiltrated the left. They've infiltrated celebrities. They've infiltrated uh, the hippie movement. They've they infiltrated everything. So it's like, I mean, to some extent it's like, you know, the militia movement's a good example. You make, they they found the, they create these militias that end up being crazy and saying crazy stuff and having people and then lo and behold someone then writes a story about it and then it, it carries forward and now it's now we have this now it completely changes the the way people view uh, militias or whatever like it's just shaping the world we live in 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 a weird way when you like take away this false reality they're kind of creating so yeah, no, that, that was a good one. Yeah, I made that video on the club only because when I woke up this morning and went on Twitter, which is a nightmare, uh, basically, <laughs> we're talking about the Trump indictments. And basically, I saw it past couple of weeks and months. I've seen this fervent divide of politics on online. 
and I just made that video uh, off the top of my head today. And I wanted to make it clear that, you know, the people are being manipulated, psychologically manipulated from the legacy media, which is the national media, um, even media abroad that are basically making sure that the people think they're, they're the enemy and to another, we're not. And we're not very different from each other. And once we realize that, we become the threat to the people that want to make us the enemy unto ourselves. And, um, you know, I, I thank you so much for having me on your show. I love it. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure having you. Like I said, I've been meaning to for a while. I do, I do appreciate your work. I mean, I think we probably have some minor differences about stuff. I know like you uh, tend to some of like the Alex Jones. So I think we might have slightly different views on that. <laughs> you're, you're a little bit more malicious. I'm a little uh, bit more radical. I, I, I think I'm a little bit more willing to forgive to yeah. some aspect but well, you're a human are... being I'm, I'm a dead soul <laughs> <laughs> but there are valid criticisms and i get it people point yeah. out like hey this specific story was super sloppy on i mean by the same time i can understand like with the role he filled uh you know i guess kind of to some extent what i do like it's hard to have every if you're covering a wide array of topics it is hard to be really good on things right uh right. so i i don't know uh you know and he there are there's some, I don't know. It, I just feel like people are complex. So, and it's like boiling it down to simplistic things sometimes doesn't do us any favors, but we're not, we're not going to go on a rant there. You have valid criticisms of Alex Jones. Yeah. I'll give you that for sure. <laughs> and some of the other people you've, uh, you point out, but, uh, yeah, it was a pleasure having you. I do want to remind people, this is a, this was a, you know, a, uh, patron curated episode there's a ten dollar level so if that's something you're interested in uh, i mean when i say curated what that means is uh roughly give me an idea of a topic guess it can be yourself uh if you if you bring me a good enough one and basically it, it, it kind of gives you like a i mean uh, don't get me wrong it has to be something i can actually do so like if i and i, I very well may be like no but when someone's like 9-11, I mean, it was like, all right, cool. I've been looking for an excuse to talk to Adam. So like that works, you know, it, it, it I don't know. It, it helps me too for like content. So I don't mind it. If that's what you want to do, it, it helps out. Uh, but I appreciate your time. You want to go ahead and drop your plugs, let people know where they can find you. Yeah, I'm pretty simple. Just my name. If you actually Google Adam Fitzgerald 9-11, I come right up. But on Twitter, if you actually go to underscore Adam Fitzgerald, I have all the links into my pinned tweet of all the uh, sites I post on. And you can always click on one of those links or whatever. All right. Well, I appreciate you. Uh, this is the No Way Jose show for people who didn't catch at the start. On YouTube, all the major iPodcasts, Aussie as well. Follow me. At Tarragang Jose on Twitter, if you'd like to do that. Uh, if you want to support me, patreon.com. Snow Jose 2020. Like, share, subscribe, comment, all that good stuff. Don't really have any big shows to plug or anything, but it's a it's a pleasure. I want to I want to say thank you to the audience out there. It was really cool uh, seeing seeing the reception from the part of the problem episode. I hope a lot of people got something out of that. I've seen a big jump in my OKC stuff. Uh, just I don't know. Just keep sharing around OKC stuff. It doesn't even have to be mine. I just think it's really cool what's happening in that specific uh, realm right now, and I want to keep that energy going. But thanks again, Adam. This is a lot of fun. Uh, if, you have any, if you have any final words, you can drop them. Otherwise, we're out of here. Um, Tower Gang <laughs> Power. Yeah, hell yeah. All right, we're out of here. <laughs> oh, click, crap. I right-clicked. <laughs> oh, no. I was clicking on the wrong thing there. <laughs> <laughs>